Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Monday, April 2nd, and we're talking financial disruptors. I'm your host, Michael Douglas. I'm joined by Matt Frankel. Now, if you've been listening to Industry Focus Financials for a while, you've heard our three episodes breaking down the big American banks. And you know, at least at a high level, how they make money. Commercial or To put it differently, more traditional banks like Wells Fargo and U.S. Bank make their money primarily by taking in deposits and lending those deposits back out as higher interest loans, pocketing the spread between the two. Investment banks like Goldman and Morgan Stanley make their money in part by advising on mergers and acquisitions and in part on wealth management fees. Universal banks do a little bit of both. Several of these banks also operate brokerages where they make money every time you make a stock trade or by uh, arbitraging the bid-ask spread, that is the difference between what you're willing to pay for a stock and what someone else is asking for for it. Most also operate credit cards with payment processors like Visa and MasterCard. And of course, they make money on credit card fees, both from you and from the merchant. And now, each of the major ways banks seek to make money is being disrupted. And they are, of course, seeking to figure out how best to respond. So we decided to dedicate today's episode to talking through five different major areas of disruption in financials and sort of helping you understand what that all means as investors and as we're thinking about the sector as a whole. So with that, I'm going to get off my soapbox and let Matt start talking a little bit. And let's start with lending and specifically peer-to-peer lending. Sure. And the peer-to-peer lending term is kind of a loose term nowadays because a lot of, like Michael said, a lot of the bigger banks have started to copy this business model. So it's not exactly peers loaning to peers anymore. Right. But at its heart, um, Prosper was actually the first mover on this. Uh, A lot of people think it was Lending Club, but Prosper actually got there a little bit earlier. Um, But Lending Club was definitely the big one that made, you know, made the industry kind of got got the banking industry on its toes, if you will, in terms of peer-to-peer lending. Basically, how it works is investors like you and I would give, would fund the loans of other people and profit from the interest. Instead of a bank making the interest money, you make the interest. Um, returns were attractive, so a lot of investors jumped on board. I think as within their first seven or eight years, by 2015, Lending Club had already broken the $10 billion mark in originated loans, which is a lot, especially since at first the banks thought they weren't going to have to worry about this. Um, And since then, a lot of other companies have kind of, you know, have similar business models. Um, Marcus by Goldman Sachs is the newest or one of the newest ones. Um, Goldman's getting into consumer banking a little bit. On the business side, you have companies like Funding Circle, Mm -hmm. um, which is a really interesting kind of concept because business lending is a big pain in the neck, um, especially in certain industries. Um, For example, before... Long before I was in in this line of work, when I was in college, I was in the restaurant business. Um, If you own a restaurant, it is almost impossible to get a bank to lend you money to expand your business. Um, So peer-to-peer lending sites like Funding Circle have made that kind of more streamlined. Uh, Square Capital is another example from Mm -hmm. Square, where they loan just based on how much credit card volume a business does, so they know they're going to get their money back. Kind of just different, more streamlined ways of loaning money to individuals and businesses that just kind of make the bank's process a whole lot better and more efficient. And banks have, most banks other than Goldman Sachs, have yet to kind of really catch up to this idea. Yeah, and it's interesting because you also see some of the smaller banks, like your bank of the internet, or BOFI rather, 
sorry, most people still call it Bank of the Internet, but it's Bofi holding technically, um, is doing a fair amount of business lending these days. And that's one of the areas that they're really trying to expand. But yeah, the fact of the matter is that the financial industry as a whole has been a little bit slow to cotton on and is still very much in catch-up mode. And what's really interesting about this to me is that it it really is taking a um, an area that has been underserved by banks and is now you know serving it a lot better. And and banks are beginning to recognize that there's a business model there, and so that to some extent creates an opportunity for them. But they're also competing with really asset-like uh, or asset-light, you know, internet startups, which frankly just don't have nearly as much in terms of costs as they do. And so that's going to be a competitive issue for them long term. Yeah, definitely. Um, kind of going hand in hand with that are the concept of these peer-to-peer payments. Um, two big apps that people use, I don't know if Michael uses either, but I've used uh, Venmo a few times. Uh, Venmo and Zelle are two big ones. Um, and unlike peer-to-peer lending, banks have actually really started to embrace peer-to-peer payments. Mm-hmm. Zelle is actually integrated into most big banks. I was looking at their website before we recorded this at their partner list, and I couldn't think I couldn't think of a bank's name in my head that wasn't on their list. <laughs> uh, names like Bank of America, Capital One, Wells Fargo, Citi, Chase, all the big ones are, and and most of the smaller, like kind of mid-sized banks are using Zelle. Um, what this kind of allows to do people to do is to send money to whoever they want without going to the ATM, writing a check, um, paying wire transfer fees, which anyone who's done that knows they're not cheap. Um, and this is really useful for things situations where you want to like split a check at dinner with somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure most listeners already <laughs> use one of these two and, and know that. <laughs> right. Um, not not me so much. I don't. No one splits my check. I have family, so. You know, I pay my own my the entire bill now. But that, that I could I could see where I would have a very very big use for an app like Venmo, you know, ten years ago. But this is an area where the banks have really embraced kind of the disruption. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, so I for the record I use Venmo and um, I've certainly seen Bank of America where I do some of my banking has done a lot of promotion of their. Uh, peer-to-peer transfers, which is, as you noted, powered by Zelle. It's, again, kind of the banking industry's response to primarily Venmo's disruption. And it's interesting because um, this is another area where fees are very much heading towards zero. And um, that is definitely going to be kind of long-term um, an, an issue for banks because you know historically, as you noted, they they've made their money from wire transfer fees and sort of all these different way you know check writing fees and check cashing fees and sort of all this stuff. And if peer to peer payments really end up kind of taking over and doing everything, that stream is going to dry up for them. And um, I mean, I'll I'll just finish with a personal anecdote when. My wife and I were heading to closing on our house. I really did not want to carry a uh, cashier's check for our down payment, so I did a wire transfer. And you know, when my bank was like, "Yeah, it's like twenty-seven dollars." I mean, of course, you know, I'm spending a lot of money on a house, and so twenty-seven dollars doesn't matter. But I was like, "Come on, really?" Like, I was so annoyed about that. Not like, only that, wire transfers are often not instantaneous. Oh yeah, um, it was. I think I think they promised it like within two business days, and and so I planned ahead, but I was still kind of like you know checking my email constantly to make sure like has it gone through, has it gone through, has it gone through. Like, am I going to be able to close? You know, anyone who's bought a house knows that there's just a 
lot of stress, particularly in that last day, particularly if you're carrying the check, I think, but also if you're doing a wire transfer. And and yeah, it um, that pretty major area where a lot of banks make a lot of money is just long term looks like it's going to dry up. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So let's also continue talking about payments, but a different part of payments, payment processing. So this has been an area where historically, you know, your bank partnered with a Visa or a MasterCard and you are making money every time somebody uses a credit card from the merchant. And of course, theoretically, also if they don't pay off their credit card bill from the consumer. But you know, on the merchant side, you know, this payment processing, this is an area that's really um, not just changing, but in a lot of ways democratizing because you know, PayPal and Square have really made this a lot easier, particularly for small businesses in ways that the the big banks and credit card companies hadn't really until that they really stepped on the stage. Yeah. Um, the prohibitive factor in the past has not necessarily been the, the processing fees that you're like the, you know, 2% or 3% that goes to Visa, MasterCard and Amex, but the hardware costs. Mm-hmm. So somebody at who say, you know, has a small booth at a craft market isn't going to buy a credit card payment system that costs $3,000. What Square's done is, you know, giving you a little teeny reader that goes into your phone that costs next to nothing, relatively, that allows anybody to accept credit cards. Um, my wife and I go to a big craft market, kind of farmer's market slash craft market downtown once a week. And I can't remember the last time I bought something there where the vendor did not accept pay, uh, cards through Square's platform. Mm-hmm. Um, and up till a couple of years ago, you had to make a separate trip to stop by an ATM on the way to a market like that. Mm-hmm. Now that's becoming a thing of the past. I, it's it beca- it's becoming much more rare that even the smallest business doesn't accept credit cards. Yes, and uh, long term, what that means is you know more competition among parent processing means that businesses will have increased choices amongst how how they accept credit cards, and that's going to mean that these payment processors. You know, to some extent, there will be competition, and I think, as a result of that, that'll be a good thing for consumers, right? Prices will come down, but it does mean that another area of income will, long term, probably dry up, at least to some extent. Now, you could argue that they'll make it back on volume, and they, and to some extent, they probably will, right? I mean, you see a lot of really tiny businesses, craft markets, farmers markets, um, even small churches uh, sometimes use Square. Um, are able to to do things, and therefore the you know credit card companies are able to pocket a little bit from the uh, transaction fees as a result. But increased competition is also going to mean that that per transaction cost and um, as you noted, those hardware costs are going to continue going down. Let's also turn to one of the other big areas that banks have made a lot of money historically, and that is things regarding investments and wealth. And there's really two areas here, but we'll start with the first one, which is stock trades. So this one's very visible, I think, to probably most people listening to this. If you're an investor, you have dealt with paying for a stock trade, right? You know, whether it's $9.99 or $7.99 or $4.95, I mean, we've all paid, or most of us at least have paid some fees. And what you've seen is because of all of the competition among the online brokers, right? Those fees have continued to come down. But you also have folks stepping in and offering free stock trades. Robinhood being a great example. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, and it's interesting to note that the, the 999 online brokerages were, were themselves a disruptor not too long ago. Right, a big one. <laughs> yeah, up until about 20 years ago, people would have to physically call a broker, pay a commission of about 1% of the sales price. If you're buying you know, $100,000 worth of stock, that's a big commission. Um, so these were themselves disruptors not long ago. But yet now you have companies like Robinhood who are doing it for free. <laughs> Um, the drawback is they don't have quite as many features as the ones that charge. Um, but what they've done is kind of put this, like like you've said, a downward pressure on prices. I use TD Ameritrade personally, mm-hmm. and they just recently went, they were one of the last holdouts at the 999 price point, and they just went down to 699 You also have um, Overstock.com is another one that's getting in who's about to offer 299 stock trades and 199 if you're a member of kind of their loyalty club. So And, and with some actual brokerage features like research reports and you know investing tools so this is a big disruption and it can force companies like td ameritrade e-trade to lower their prices even more over the years and like you said eventually gravitating toward virtually free stock trades where you're just going to be paying a small premium for the other features of the platform Mm -hmm. well and the other piece that i'll throw out there as well is that you're seeing a lot of um, use of free stock trades to try to get people to join your platform, right? Um, I, I've seen plenty of platforms offer, oh, you get 60 days of free trading or you get 60 free stock trades in your first year, you know, things like that. Uh, I personally use Merrill Edge, which is uh, owned by Bank of America. And um, because I have a certain amount of assets with Bank of America and things like that, I'm able to get some free trades. And so sort of all of that combined is is, is a sign, again, that the the very traditional side of the industry, right, the big banks, and then the less traditional, but at this point, incumbent part of the industry, which are the the online brokerages that are divorced from the free banks or from the big banks, are all finding ways to respond and to try to kind of retain that market share in the face of what is frankly a really compelling value proposition. It's hard to beat free. You can, and of course, what what you need and what makes the most sense for you is going to depend based on what your research needs are and you know, how, you know, how you invest and sort of a lot of other things. But the fact of the matter is that this is going to continue that downward pressure. Speaking of downward pressure, let's talk about wealth management, which again, as we highlighted earlier, is something that you see from the investment banks and then also the universals. And of course, the commercial banks in some cases do some of this too, but it's more on the investment bank side. And that's, you know, wealth management fees. Wealth management fees have been in a downward trend for a long time. And a lot of that is because of the advent of robo-advisors. Now, we've done an episode on robo-advisors. That was uh, our November 12th industry focus. So uh, November 12th, 2017, that is. So give it a listen if you want to learn more about them. But we'll give a quick overview here. Yeah, robo-advisor pretty much puts the investment process on autopilot. It makes decisions with your portfolio, how to allocate assets, um, how much risk to take on, things like that. But it pretty much does it automatically, so you're not paying a person to do it for you. Um, The industry standard for a wealth manager is still about 1% of assets. Mm. It's gotten a little bit lower over the years, but it used to be kind of in the, you know, closer to the 2% range. But so 1% of assets, where just for comparison, uh, Wealthfront and Betterment are two of the big robo-advisory firms, and they each charge a quarter of a percent of assets on an ongoing basis. And some of the um, kind of bigger names, uh, TD Ameritrade, for example, my broker, they they just kind of rolled out, it's called their essential portfolios. 
that charges a 0.3% of assets and offers some very low-cost mutual funds to invest in. Um, Schwab has a robo-advisory service that's been very successful so far. These are particularly resonating among the millennials that are just very anti-fee. Um, fees weren't very transparent up till a short, not up till not that long ago, and millennials, more than anyone else, are getting very aware of the fees they pay and are trying to avoid them. Kind of realizing that someone's making a ton of money from their investments, whereas there's a better option that they could be making all that money. And over time, that little difference in fees can really add up. Yeah, I did an article not long ago where the difference between even a 0.5 and 1% fee in an, an, an IRA long term could add up to about $10,000 of difference in gains. So this is a, a big deal for you know, value conscious investors. Absolutely. No, fees are one of the great killers of investment returns, along with, of course, poor investments being sort of the other part of it. <laughs> right. um, but yeah, when, when you think about sort of all five of these major trends, so that is, again, peer-to-peer lending, peer-to-peer payments, payment processing, free stock trades, or let's say free and reduced price stock trades, and robo-advisors. I think there are some some really big key takeaways for all of us to consider as we're thinking about how to invest in these um trends or how to invest in response to these trends. The first is that some of these folks are going to make money. Many, I think like Venmo, for example, will really really struggle to because in most cases, these are all heading toward a cost of zero. You'll make up some of it on volume for sure. And I think particularly for the payment processing, I think there is a, a, a good argument to make on volume there, particularly if you can get your underlying hardware costs down and just free it up and sort of create a step change there of additional demand. But in a lot of cases, this is going to make costs go down, great for consumers, but uh, on the flip side, that can make it a little bit more difficult for the investing for the investing side. The other thing that I'll point out, and this is particularly on the lending side, watch out, watch very carefully for anyone who claims to have cracked credit, to really, really understand, to have applied some new algorithm, to really understand how uh, uh, who is a good credit risk and who is you know, sort of a risky credit risk. If that company wasn't around in the financial crisis and does not have a record that you can look at when the credit cycle you know, turns against people, I would be very skeptical of that because, frankly, it's very easy sort of, you know, to look over your shoulder and say, well, this is how we should have, you know, this is how we would have done things. Nobody really predicts these things well beforehand. And so it's very important to see how any business does in both a good credit cycle and a bad one, you know, when the economy is doing well and when we're in a recession. And I personally have a lot of trouble investing in companies that haven't operated in both areas, although I still do sometimes. And I think that's a good conversation about risk we can have. That's probably a long conversation. Um, The final point that I'll make, though, is banks have historically made their money because of market inefficiencies. And so, as these inefficiencies disappear, as these markets become more competitive and more efficient, it will be increasingly difficult for them to churn out a profit. And I think that is something that anyone investing in financials should be paying a lot of attention to. Folks, that's it for this week's financial show. Questions, comments, you can always reach us at industryfocusatfull.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Matt Frankel, I'm Michael Douglas. 
Thanks for listening and full on. <laughs>